Good morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful because we know that you are a God who has a heart for the entire world. You have a heart that delights in extending mercy, deliverance, and salvation. And we rejoice and we're grateful because you've extended that to us in Christ. So we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the nice advantages for these days when I get to preach is that I also get to plan the music, um, which means that, especially as a person who really isn't very good with sermon introductions or really at formulating any sort of illustration at all, that's really handy. So we're going to sing a song during communion um, that we've done a lot of times, Arise, Shine, for Your Light Has Come. There's a line in there that actually kind of summarizes a lot of the theological background or context for this story that we just read in the Gospels. Nations will come to your light. Nations will come to your light. It's a line from Isaiah, where Isaiah is prophesying that Israel is going to be so established in the land that the nations are going to be kind of streaming into them because Israel is going to be like a beacon. This is something that shows up over and over again in, um, in Isaiah. The, the longer backstory for that, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning, was that Israel was actually supposed to be God's answer to the fall. So you think of Adam and Eve's sin. Um, because of their disobedience, sin enters into the world. Through that sin, death. And then one of the immediate consequences for that is their exile, right? They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Israel was meant by God to be a part of his restoration of what was broken there. And so you see when Israel is actually formed into a people, when they're gathered around Mount Sinai and God's about to give them the, uh, the Ten Commandments, he says, you're going to be a priesthood. You're going to be a people that's set apart among the nations so that the nations through you and the way that you live and the way that you worship and serve me but then also through the prosperity that comes to you through that so that they can see who I am. They can see my goodness so that the nations can see what it means to actually follow and worship me. But as the story goes on, we know that Israel, just like Adam and Eve, failed. They failed to be that light to the nations. And that was tied to their more general failure to keep God's law and to actually be faithful in worship. And so the punishment for that failure is kind of a twist on Israel's role. They were supposed to be firmly planted in the land that God had given them so that the nations could see them and see the way that they lived and worshipped and know the goodness of God. Well, since they failed at that, the consequences were then that Israel would be scattered among the nations, no longer fixed in that land. They were dispersed. And instead of being a light or a beacon there in the promised land, it was almost like that light had gone out. But even while they're in that exile, God is continually reminding them through the prophets that that exile wasn't going to be permanent. God was going to restore them to their home. In Jesus' time, we see Israel living in a sort of partial fulfillment of that. Much of Israel is now back in the promised land. But at the same time, they're there almost like strangers because they don't rule the land. They're under the authority of Gentiles. Rome is over them. So they're there. There's a partial fulfillment, 
But there's this hope in the kind of Jewish imagination that there's a fuller restoration in front of them. Part of their expectation was that this restoration, actually, would also include a restoration of their purpose to be that light. In other words, this getting full control of their land back was actually tied to this idea that they would become more pure. Because remember, their, their sin, their disobedience is what led them to be kicked out of the land. Well, their restoration of that land would include their becoming pure or faithful again, but it was also tied to a restoration of that purpose. Israel also longed to be that light that they were meant to be. So our Isaiah passage that we just read is actually an example of one of those prophecies that's pointing towards that. It's pointing towards Israel once again restored in the land, but it's also got these whispers of these echoes of their actually fulfilling that purpose. Did you hear the lines about foreigners coming in and being joined to God? It was a restoration of both of those things tied together. And it was even going to be better than it was in the beginning because these people who were from the outside or maybe others who would have been excluded from the full participation in Israel's worship, they were actually going to be brought fully in. So there's this hope of even something that's better to come than what was lost. What we see in the Gospels is that Jesus is the means that God was going to use to restore that purpose, right? Jesus is going to be the one through whom Israel is actually able to become that light again. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus is going to succeed. That's a theme that runs through the Old Testament. It's one we see in the Gospels. It's actually that theme that Paul is leaning on in Romans, the New Testament passage that we read. God's not moving on from Israel. He's not rejecting Israel because they've been disobedient. But instead, he's going to use Israel's rejection to bring in others from other nations. And then he's going to use those others to actually draw Israel in. This is all part of God's plan to extend grace and mercy, deliverance, salvation to the world. And that's just a little taste of the the theological and the historical context that's underneath this story that we read about Jesus. And I wanted us to hold on to that story because I really think that for us to understand the way that Jesus talks to this woman, we need to know this whole history of what God has been doing and this history of what God has promised to do from here. And I think we especially need to be able to hold on to that when we read this one line that's almost a little bit unsettling. Jesus did not answer her a word. I think that all of us have probably been in a position that's similar to that, where it feels like our prayers, even our desperate prayers, have been met by God's silence. We don't know what to do with it. Now, maybe I'm projecting here, but for me, sometimes it's actually not that God's silent at all. It's just that I've drowned him out with all sorts of things, whether they're distractions or my own sin. But there are really times when we come before God earnestly, and it seems as though we don't hear anything. I think part of the problem there is that we can't see what God sees, right? We don't see clearly the mind or the will of God in those moments. We don't always see the history of God kind of working up to that point or the things that he's going to do from that, because we're always sort of trapped in our present, right? We're limited by the things that we can see or hear or feel. And that can make God's silence, if we're going to call it that, a little bit hard to endure. But what I think is so beautiful about this story is that even if we can't see all of the inner workings of Jesus' mind or heart here, 
Like he's not sort of mumbling off to the side to Matthew who records it and then gives it to us. We don't have that. But in Scripture, we do see that whole story of God orchestrating all of history to bring hope to the nations through Israel. And we can see how Jesus himself is the one that God has sent to bring that about. And so if we know those things, then we know that even when Jesus answers her not a word, something like that, we know that he is fully invested in extending hope and mercy and salvation to the nations, even to this foreign woman. And we can know that even more if we think of the story going forward from here. Think of the story of Pentecost, when everyone who hears the apostles preaching hears it in their own language, and thousands are drawn to the Lord. Or of the work of Christians from that point bringing the gospel to people all over the place across the Mediterranean. Fast forward all the way to the end, Revelation. You see this picture of multitudes streaming into the throne room. Or you see people from nations who are lined up for the wedding supper of the Lamb. We can look at all of those things and we can know absolutely for sure that however long it took Jesus to respond to her, whether that silence was five seconds or five minutes or five hours, however much his first words to her might have actually pained her, that Jesus' heart was fully for her salvation and her deliverance. We need to understand that to to understand what he's doing here. So let's look at that story. Jesus has left Israel for Tyre and Sidon, and he's been met by a woman who's leaving there and coming towards Israel because her daughter is oppressed by a demon. And she's not just any woman. She's a Canaanite woman. Canaanite is a sort of catch-all term for the people who inhabited the land when Israel got there, 1,500 years before. And God didn't tell Israel to coexist nicely with the Canaanites. He said, if you will obey me, If you will go to cast them out, I will destroy them for you. If you would just do what I said, I will do all the work. And yet they're not faithful there. They're not obedient. And so the rest of Israel's history is this sort of of tug of war. And lots of times, Israel, because they're, they're marrying the sons or the daughters of the Canaanites, because they're looking at them and maybe whatever prosperity they see there, for whatever reason, they'll start to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And because of that unfaithfulness, and because of the ways that they adopt the Canaanite ways, God punishes them. And how does he punish them if it's not by handing them over to their Canaanite neighbors to oppress them? It's sort of back and forth and back and forth. Israel is unfaithful. God punishes them. God delivers them from the Canaanites. It happens over and over again. They were instigators in a lot of Israel's disobedience. So long story short, after 1,500 years of that, they don't like each other. They're not on friendly terms. So we've got a Canaanite woman who kind of in herself embodies this whole story of Israel's failure, coming to Jesus and crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So if the Canaanites are sort of Israel's ancient arch rival, David, for the Canaanites, is the sort of Israelite boogeyman. He's the hammer that crushed them over and over again. And the son of David is the hope that Israel has that God's going to deliver them again. When she cries out, son of David, she's actually calling out on Israel's hope, not her own. Israel actually hoped that this son of David would come and would actually destroy Israel's enemies, which presumably would have included her. 
But Jesus, even in that sort of bizarre situation, doesn't answer her a word. He answers his disciples, who seem really upset that there's this Canaanite woman who's making unpleasant noises and following them around. He answers them, but even that's kind of cryptic. He just says to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think when Jesus says that, part of what he's doing is locating for us kind of what part of the story we're in. Because up to this point in this story of God and the nation, Israel and the nations, the idea has always been that the nations were going to stream into Israel. This happens over and over through the prophets. You're going to be a beacon, or you're going to be on God's holy mountain, and the nations are going to come to you. The hope for Israel was always to be anchored securely in the promised land. There was never a sending out. There are a few very isolated incidences, but they're not very many. The Old Testament picture was always one of the Gentiles coming in, into this place where God's presence was in a particular way. Nations streaming into Zion. Nations coming to the light there. There's going to be a shift, but it's not going to happen in full force until Pentecost. That's when the sort of movement of God's people shifts from coming into the land and instead explodes outward. I think in a lot of ways, Jesus, in that cryptic statement to the disciples, is simply echoing the part of the story, that part of redemption history that they're in. Jesus was sent to Israel. So if you want redemption or deliverance, just like it's always been, you should go to Israel. That's where God does that. That's the people that you need to be joined to. We don't really know why Jesus chooses not to speak directly to her here. Um, some would say that maybe it's because he wants to exalt her faith and her humility, which he certainly does. Maybe that's it. It could be that he wants to cultivate and strengthen that faith. I think he does that too, so maybe that's it. But whatever the reason is for Jesus' silence, I want us to see very, very carefully how the woman responds to it. She comes with utter humility, throwing himself, even when he is silent, on his mercy. She doesn't take Jesus' silence as a rejection or as a polite invitation to leave. She responds with persistence. And it's either because she trusts his character or because she is totally desperate and has nowhere else to go, or maybe both. Reminded me of a parable that Jesus spoke about a judge. In the judge's words, I neither fear God nor respect man. But still, this, this woman comes to this judge for justice, and she essentially harasses him until he gives it to her. Jesus' point in that parable is that even if a, if a wicked judge would do that, how much more does God want to hear your persistent prayers and delight in being generous there? But Jesus' first response doesn't seem to reflect that generosity. Instead, it sounds like a rejection that's even firmer than his silence was. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In other words, this salvation or this deliverance, it's given to the Jews. And it wouldn't be right to give it to any other. And you can't really, like we live in a world where puppies are cute and we all love dogs. You can't avoid the fact that this is not a cute thing that Jesus has said to her. It's a jab. No one gets called a dog as praise in this culture or this world. But what's so beautiful is that in what looks like a humiliating response, Jesus has actually extended her an invitation. 
He has extended her an opening. And so the question is, is she going to lower herself again to go through that opening or through that invitation? She is. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She responds to Jesus with total humility. She's even willing to let Jesus put her in that humiliating place in the, in the story. A dog eating scraps, maybe even from under her, her enemy's table. Because she knows that it's better to be in the lowest place in his presence than to be anywhere else. She knows that she can't get what she needs from anywhere else. She knows that to receive his mercy in whatever form is better than receiving the greatest riches that anyone else could offer. Think about our song. I'd rather be a servant in your house, O oh God, than a king with all the riches I could hold. And to that, Jesus responds by exalting her, praising her, and instantly giving her what she wants so desperately, healing for her daughter. Now, it's easy for us to read that story and not be surprised because, of course, he healed her. He's Jesus. Like, what, else, what else would you expect Jesus to do? Of course that's his heart. Of course God loves the nations. But this woman who surely doesn't know the Hebrew Scriptures and who probably doesn't really know Jesus other than through rumors or whispers, how much of that story could she have known? How could she have possibly believed that the God of her enemies would actually want to show her mercy? And yet, even so, even with that silence, she is resolved to cling to him, and to throw herself on his mercy, and to receive whatever it is that he gives. Now, I wanted to wrestle with that this week because I think it really does sometimes, we do often find ourselves in that same place. Bringing the things that weigh us down before him often seeming like he doesn't answer. My prayer for us is that we could learn to experience that silence the way that she did. She doesn't accept it serenely. She doesn't kind of serenely but proudly say, if you please, but if you don't want to, that's okay. She's sort of thrashing around on the inside. She's upset. But even so, she's holding on. And Jesus takes that and maneuvers the conversation so that her faith can be strengthened and so that her heart can be drawn toward his. I don't know what the things are that would drive each of us to that same sort of desperation. Could be health, finances, some sort of relationship that's on the rocks. But what I think is so beautiful is that Jesus knows something that maybe we don't know. I think he knows that that sort of desperation that would drive us to ultimate dependence on him, that's part of the heartbeat of intimacy with God. If we understood our hearts rightly, that's where we knew that we would be at all times. Can't tell you what he'll do with your burden, right? I can't tell you that he'll... He'll heal you in the way that he instantly healed her daughter. But I think what Jesus does want to teach us, and what maybe the silence is an invitation for us to learn, is that it's better to be in a storm with Jesus than to be anywhere else without him. 
that maybe sometimes his, what seems like his slowness to answer is actually an invitation to draw us near. Or maybe it's the soil that he wants to use to cultivate in us what we need even more desperately than the things that we would ask for. Deeper faith. Deeper and richer intimacy with him. So my prayer for us this week is that even when it seems like he's silent or asleep in the storm, that the sort of gravity of those moments would actually draw you closer to him. No matter what it is that you feel in that moment, we know that the one who lived, died, rose, and ascended longs for your salvation. He's returning to bring that to to its fullness. And if those things are true, then even if you don't feel like he is near or even if you can't hear him in that moment, you can still know that he is for you, that mercy is extended, and that he wants to draw you near. If you know the end of the story, then you know that there is no way that he could have abandoned you here either. And I want to close with one more specific aside here. It's not really an aside, but it's one thing in particular that I think is jarring but beautiful about the story. With all of that said, we talked about Jesus being in this sort of inflective point in redemption history, a sort of pivot, because up to this point, it's always been about the nation streaming into Israel. And here Jesus is doing stuff outside of Israel. He heard this woman's cry, but he knew that up to this point, that's kind of where they've been in the story. But something here moves him to make a pivot to extend mercy to someone outside of the boundaries of Israel, even to one of Israel's enemies. And what was it that pushed him to that? It was the desperate prayer of a mother. And so I'm sure that all of you who have children are praying for them, and I'm really grateful to be the son of parents who have been praying for me. It's a beautiful and a rich thing. But I also know that there are a lot of you who are praying desperately and urgently for your children because there's a need that you have identified in their lives that only God can meet. That can range from the health of their bodies to sort of the things that are coming up next in their lives all the way to the states of their souls. I know that there are a lot of us who are praying for children because we've recognized that there's an urgent need there that needs to be met. And my guess is that for many of you who have been praying like this for months or years or even decades, it has often felt like maybe God wasn't moving or wasn't doing something. And I want you to just simply be able to see this story and delight in the fact that the desperate prayer of a a mother actually moves the needle in redemptive history. It actually moves Jesus to do something that's actually historically like, unique and marvelous. And that that same heart that Jesus has toward this woman is also a heart that he extends to you. So your desperate and urgent prayers for your children are beautiful and delightful in Jesus' eyes. Even if they feel like they're faulty or they're weak or they're full of doubts or they're shaky, Jesus finds those beautiful. That's the heart of the God that we have and the God who hears our prayers. And so whatever it is that is driving our prayers, that or anything else, can we keep Jesus' heart here in mind and remember that that's who he is? There is a real limit to how much faith we can muster in ourselves. We can't rely on our own faith. So don't be discouraged when even that fails you. 
But do know that in this Jesus, there is no limit to his mercy or his generosity or his absolute strength. He's the one who has promised total deliverance for his people. You can't hold on perfectly, but he can. And if that's true, then even these moments of silence can be a gift to us from our Lord. So I pray that that would be the soil for deeper faith and deeper intimacy with him. Let it draw you deeper into his presence so he can give us something that is far better and far greater than anything else that we could ask for himself. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.